Good morning, Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. She, of course, is Sylvia O'Bell. Children, it is Friday. Hey, stripper kick, stripper kick, stripper kick. And you're watching <laughs> AM to DM. <laughs> it is the first day of Black History Month ah. and our first blackout edition of AM to DM. We are so excited. We've been having so much fun this morning. <laughs> every Friday in February to celebrate Black History, every host you see on AM to DM, every guest, every reporter, and so many of the stories are going to be of interest by black people for black people get Boo -boo into it productions happening everywhere <laughs> we're so excited to get to do this because we know it's still incredibly rare for black people and our stories and our history to be centered on tv so that's happening at least on am to dm but also black history month girl how you feeling i am your first 10 hours of black history Ooh, we month. are 10 hours in and so far we have already have a black presidential kid two black presidential cory booker said hello hello i love it yeah kamala had Kamala MLK took MLK Day. Day and he was like, fine, I'll do Black, Black History, History Month. Month. But no, I'm so excited for Black History Month. Step mm -hmm. one is an important day to me. My yes. Aggies, shout out to North Carolina A&T State University. I love, and you you had some history about this, you were talking Yes, about. because on step one, the Greensboro Four, who okay. are four A&T students, started the sit-in movement wow. down south in the Greensboro at the Woolworth counter. And Incredible. so it's a big, it's, you know, it's a bit important mm -hmm. uh -huh. uh, thing that started helped start roll the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And we really appreciate a nice, fun, historical kickoff. I love it. To the new month. Tea, and of course yes. you're an alumni. That is so exciting. And I just, you know, with everything going on in the country, in our world, in our news, I feel like, you know, I look forward to every February. I love history. I think it is dynamic. It can be funny. It can be sexy. It can be shocking and emotional. Um, and, but also it brings me joy. It brings me mm -hmm. joy to celebrate black history because it's our country's history. Our, our country does not exist without black history. And so I'm just all about Negro sunshine for February. Get yeah. into it, we gotta get the sun somewhere. Cause it's cold as hell outside. It's cold as fucking New York. <laughs> so let's take it to the timeline. Share some Black history with us. It can be a cool fact, a historical figure, maybe somebody making history right now. Uh, tweet us using the hashtag #AMToDM, also known as All Black Everything. Also known as Venmo Us Reparations. Venmo Us Reparations. No, Venmo Me Reparations. Said is fine. Okay, the pay gap exists amongst us Blacks as well. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> He's fine. There's her video handle right there. <laughs> Pay me what you owe me. <laughs> she ain't wrong. She ain't wrong. Well, in listen to Black Women News, the government has opened up temporarily right in time for the Super Bowl. And all I have to say is, I told you so. Yeah, yeah literally two weeks ago, Sylvia tweeted, my hot take on prediction is that the Super Bowl will be what ends the government shutdown because the NFL is the real Illuminati and they can't afford for Atlanta to be a mess come this February. You were right. And now here we are. Dang. Dang. It's open right in time. Uh-huh. For open and closing around right. the Super Bowl. That's such a good point. Not only did the shutdown end, but like the little like it's the window temporary. wraps up right after I'm the Super Bowl saying, is over. Wow. Know me, Detective O'Bell. <laughs> She's on Conspiracy the case. Conspiracy theorist. <laughs> she's, right. she's right. Well, the government shutdown, of course, isn't the only thing the NFL and Roger Goodell are dodging. Is juking a thing? I feel like juking is a football. I don't know. Look at Saeed trying to be. Oh, it's fine. Here's what Karin J. Phillips had to say. I was at Roger Goodell's press conference and watched as he dodged tough questions on black coaches, Colin Kaepernick, and the officiating in the Saints-Rams game during the Super Bowl conference. I'm assuming it was a some confrontational calls were being made. Well, Bleacher Reports' Master Tess Falcione joins us now from Atlanta to talk about it. Good morning. 
Hey. Good morning. How you guys doing? Happy Black History Month. Happy, Happy Black, Black History, History Month, Month, my brother. Yes. Okay, so we were just talking about this conference yesterday uh, with Roger Goodell. What exactly happened? What were the questions he was getting grilled on? Yeah, uh, there was two, obviously, key points. Uh, one of them was obviously Colin Kaepernick and why he still has, doesn't have a job. And Colin, Ka uh, Colin Kaepernick is currently in a collusion case with the NFL. So, you know, Roger Goodell had to play the legality kind of technical standpoint with this quote. But he basically said that if a team decides Colin Kaepernick or any other player can help their team win, that's what they'll do. So he's basically saying if a team feels like Colin Kaepernick is worth being on, on their roster, that he would have been on their roster already which we know is a bunch of garbage because you saw guys like Nathan Peterman starting this year in the NFL and they were trash. So there is a lot of scrubs at the quarterback position. There is a shortage at the quarterback position. And the fact that Colin Kaepernick does not have a job, which at worst case, he could be a very solid backup. Best case, a solid middle of the line quarterback that can start that he still hasn't been in the league over two seasons. It's ridiculous. Mm. And again, there's a bunch of legality within this because of the case that's going on. So uh, Roger Goodell continues to hammer on the point that the NFL has been hammering on the last few years that this is an individual decision made by each and every team and that Colin Kaepernick tech in their mind wasn't good enough to be on a roster. And it's, it's a bunch of garbage. The second point was the diversity situations going on in the NFL where there are not a lot of minority coaches, particularly black coaches who are head coach in positions to be head coaches, particularly in the season when there was a bunch of black coaches who got fired and only one Brian Flores, who technically still hasn't been hired yet is uh, a Patriots assistant head coach. He's going to join the, the Minnesota, the Miami Dolphins, excuse me, to become their head coach. And so there is a huge issue right now about why there are not minorities being hired as head coaches. And it's basically a system that doesn't allow black coaches to be promoted or put in positions to be promoted to eventually get to that point where they can be head coaches. And it makes no sense because 70% of the players are black. You would yeah. think a black coach would be able to nurture and mentor these black players in a way that other people cannot relate to. However, the NFL does not regard that to any sort of uh, 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 they don't they don't value that in any way. And they'd rather continue in the system in which they believe in, which allows, again, white coaches to continuously get promoted in ways that they are ultimately in charge. Mm. Yeah. And with all of this going on, you know, with all these racial issues, do you feel like it's fair? You know, like there's a talk about protesting the NFL. Mm -hmm. But do you think it's fair for us to hold black celebrities accountable for their participation in the Super Bowl, whether it be halftime or a commercial, mm. when we're all still watching, and we're all still going Super Bowl mm -hmm. and everybody's still Speak you for know, yourself. Yeah. except for Saeed. You know, honestly, <laughs> I, I, I wrestle with that. I really do. Uh, first and foremost, that Chance the Rapper commercial was trash, so he should have. Oh! I, 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 I didn't hear that this morning. That commercial is garbage. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I hope Doritos paid you the bag, boy, because that is a terrible look. But Cardi's Pepsi commercial is amazing, and, you know, okay, Lil Jon's in good. there. That one was good. Okay, I'll, I'll get Cardi. Again, Cardi always on her grind. She know, she's smart. She know, how to, she know it's going to be a good look and get the bag. Come on now. Chance, man, you need, you need Cardi's PR people, man. That I was know. a terrible look. But we gave but like, him and Travis and all of them a hard time. Should we be? I don't think so. I don't think so. And I wrestled with this. And, I, and this is coming from a huge Travis Scott fan. When I saw that he was announced to become, uh, be a part of the halftime rotation, I kind of scratched my head and wondered, is this a good look or is this a bad look? And I think ultimately you have to look at this is probably one of those like, you know, bucket list goals for a lot of these artists and entertainers when they look at, you know, Whitney Houston and they look at all these great artists, Prince that have performed this halftime show, the stage where 100 million people are looking at you and they're trying to make the best show as possible. 
I don't I don't think I should necessarily hold that against him. And again, you understand the political side of this with the Colin Kaepernick situation. And you understand that the NFL works in a way in which they don't allow black coaches or they don't allow black athletes to speak out on social and racial injustice. But if you also look around, that's capital. I mean, capitalism in America does not allow you to do that in general. And uh, you, you have to understand that, like, this is a stage for Travis Scott to do his like to display his art, to express himself. This is a stage for Cardi B to do the same thing. And ultimately, I, I think you have to respect that and understand that this is something that they want to do. And they, this is a way that they want to uh, display their talents and expand their audience and let people expose themselves in a way and cr- express themselves creatively in a way that possibly they never have before. And I, I don't, as a creator myself, I, I think I have to respect that and that decision that they want to do that because I understand the severity and the weight of that stage. Um, but I wrestle with that. I, I don't think it's an easy answer. It's a very gray area to the situation because you also have to factor in again that they're not allowing Colin Kaepernick to play in the NFL. So it doesn't lose sight. It, I don't lose sight of that when I, I answer this question. However, as a creative, I just feel like and understand that, you know, if there's, you know, if I wanted to win a Pulitzer and some situation popped up and that was something I, I always wanted to do in my life, like it's it's hard for me to uh you know hold that against Travis Scott or hold that against Cardi B. Yeah, that's a fair point. It is it is very complicated. Um one last quick question. Um you are there in Atlanta and and to this point, I mean are are there protesters? Are things kind of tense? Have you gotten a sense of any difference or is it just kind of like just another Super Bowl? It's just another Super Bowl, man. The, the NFL, like, it's scary how good they are with PR, where they're able to just sweep things under the rug and be very reactionary. When situations pop up, they know how to just move on from it. And you saw particularly this year in the NFL where the protests were down significantly. The conversations and discussions that were at the forefront of social injustice and police brutality in America were not at the forefront this season. And it, it is frightening of how the NFL was able to shift completely away from that issue and make it about football again. That is frightening. And you look around Atlanta right now, there's no protests going on. Everybody's is business usual. I was at the Super Bowl last year. It was the same thing. Uh, well, there was one protest, but it was about a local issue going on in Minneapolis. The, the people here, I'm, I'm literally outside of, near Centennial Park right now. Everything has been normal. There's been a lot of security around, probably extra security than the normal than what I'm used to. But in terms of any protests or any demonstrations that have been on, especially in a city that's so black like Atlanta, I haven't seen anything to this point. Mm. Well, I guess Ooh. all we can do is hope Black History Month doesn't start with yet another Patriots win. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Master. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's too funny. It was great talking to him. Yeah. Well, here's a tweet from the wonderful Roxanne Gay. She said, I need journalists to stop calling racism racially charged. There's no such thing as racially charged. That is a term you have invented because you think calling someone a racist is worse than actually being a racist. Mm. Aaron Hayes-Wack had this prediction for 2019. I have well-meaning colleagues who may hesitate to use racism in stories when that's actually what they mean. This is a disservice to our industry and well-meaning consumers of news. My Neiman Lab prediction, we will make it more plain. We will make it more plain. Well, Aaron Haynes-Wack, race and politics reporter for the Associated Press, joins us now. Aaron, happy Black History Month. 
Happy Black History Month to you. Absolutely. It's so Thanks for having me. You. Of course, of course. So in your wonderful, wonderful piece, you note that, for example, we don't say gender-tinged when we mean sexist. Um, someone on Twitter I saw the other day say, we don't say, like, homosocially, racially, you know, we don't do that for, like, homophobia, right? So why is racially charged still, even this morning in some headlines I was reading, um, persistent in journalism? Yeah, I mean, I think that if we're being honest, uh, just like Roxanne said, racially charged doesn't really mean anything, right? Uh, but in some cases, while we may be actually using it to describe something that maybe doesn't quite rise to the level of racism, in many cases, we're really just taking the easy way out. And, and you know, the journal gymnastics uh, that you were, were kind of citing uh, to, to, to you, you know, to try to call something what, what it really is, 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 is what racially charged, racially tinged is, is really about. And, and so, you know, really what we have to do as journalists when we are kind of reaching for that phrase is, is to ask ourselves, you know, is this really what I mean to say? Like, why am I using this? Am I using it because it's accurate or because I'm uncomfortable? Mm. Yeah. And why do you think, it's interesting to me how, you know, people, especially, let's, let's say, call it what it is, white people are more hesitant to call somebody racist than to be racist. Or, you know, they feel like it's worse to be called a racist than to enact racism. racism. Yeah. You know, I, w that rhetoric, I feel like, is a bit dangerous. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, race is not a bad word, but it does make a lot of people uncomfortable. And, you know, I, I think that, yeah, we are talking largely about white journalists who maybe are not thinking about or wrestling with these issues, uh, not only in their own lives, but in their work uh, as much as, uh, you know, journalists of color uh, may be doing. And so they uh, maybe don't have as much practice uh, with the subject. And so when it comes time to address these issues, uh, it can it can be awkward. And, and in fact, you know, that's how you end up getting to terms like racially charged. Totally. And and be, to the point of awkwardness, um, you know, a lot of this, this language, I think, in my opinion, takes place in the editing process. You know, there's a scenario in one, either the writer or reporter writes racially charged and the editor doesn't say, let's rethink that, or maybe the editor or copy editor actually insists on that, like, this is our house style as a newsroom. So do you have any advice, particularly, I would say, for younger writers, reporters, producers, on how to approach this kind of moment? Because it's, a, it's an important decision. Well, sure. And I mean, I would, I would push back and just say, I mean, this is a challenge for reporters uh, and journalists of, of all ages uh, and, and all races, uh, frankly. And, and this is really why diversity, I think, really matters in newsrooms. I mean, hopefully, uh, if, if you are in a newsroom where you have colleagues that you can consult on these issues and not just when you are on deadline, you know, frankly, or they're on deadline. So really, I think that this is about opening a dialogue uh, with your colleagues that is going to give you that practice and like that memory muscle, you know what I mean? So that the next time that a situation like this comes up, and unfortunately there will almost certainly be a next time, uh, you know, you're, you're better equipped uh, to, to deal with this when, when it, you're confronted with it for, for your next story. Absolutely. Um, as always, Aaron, it's a pleasure reading your work and talking to you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Bye. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take this to the timeline. Racially charged is officially canceled. It's over. Over. <laughs> what is the most creative way you've seen someone describe 
something that is racist? Mm. Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I guess for me, the, what actually came to mind first was um, there have been instances where um, someone who's not black um, has been talking about someone black, like in a story and conversation, and they there's this weird hesitance. They almost mm. whisper it, like, yes, yeah, so I was talking to so-and-so and everything, and he was... And it's like, what, what just happened? Yeah, so that's something. Because to me, I'm like, well, if you, if, if everything is so loaded, if just the existence of racial identity in our language is something charged for you, then I can only imagine what you're going to do when we're actually talking about something that is charged. Yeah. And, what about you? I mean, for me, it's really been like during, since we've gotten black candidates, and mm -hmm. I think that's going to be important in this election. Woo! We're seeing people try to explain why they don't feel comfortable voting for the black mm -hmm. candidate, mm -hmm. and the answer they're dancing around is mm -hmm. racism. You know, saying yeah. things like, you know, I just don't know if they understand yeah. my American experience. Yeah, it's and like, uh, I are, think that's where they grew up here too. Yeah. And, and I feel know, like that's where birtherism comes from too. Yeah. Like it's a really over the top creative way to basically say they're not like us. They can't right. be American. Or it's like, like I just, there's a fear of the unknown. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. like, the unknown race that you are not. Like, yeah. what, are you, what are you saying? <laughs> what are you saying? What are you saying? <laughs> well, to that point, we've got a great show for you guys today. The new chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, Congresswoman Karen Bass, will be joining us. And later in the show, I talked to playwright Jeremy O'Harris. His play, Slave Play, set New York ablaze, darling. <laughs> and his new play, Daddy, is going to do the same. I'm excited. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. <laughs> Welcome back. Um, we asked you, you know, what's the most creative way you've heard people avoid uh, just being candid about describing racism? And um, Wendy, you said when people use economic insecurity. Oh. Ooh. Like, ooh, T All right, Wendy. Let's get into these fire tweets, children. Quinta, we love you, Quinta, tweeted, I look good in the mirror, but not on the front facing camera. Which one is the liar? It's a common day struggle. It's it's so disheartening. It's horrible. But I will say, I, I replied to um, Quintus' tweet, and I was like, yeah, I do want to know. And someone, I have to find it, but someone actually explained that there is actually science that explains it, and mm. it's um, about the, the ratio of perspective. So yeah, like, there's a reason we look like shit in our front-facing camera. So our phones are the liar. Our phones. Mm, that mm. damn Matthew. Yeah, oh, well, we have actually from Matthew. I'm sorry. Matthew tweeted, camera's got a wider angle, so it distorts your face. This is why with my big camera, but the wide versus is generally what our eyes see versus dramatic. So focal length. Okay. I only understood about five words of that. But Science. The T is that the mirror is telling the truth. All right. Time for, ready for the next one? Let's do it. It's a very black Twitter name. I love it. Mama Africa tweeted. <laughs> <laughs> White people be like, oh, for Pete's sake? My nigga, who is Pete? Who? I, who? Who? I, for like I hours. would actually, who? yeah, who, who? I would genuinely, like, if someone knows, like, the, where Which does Pete that come started from? This? I feel, I'd always think of Pete and Pete from Nickelodeon. Is it, like, is it like St. Peter? You know, like St. Oh, Peter. Oh, for Pete's sake. You know, like, cause it's, cause that like make you sense. know why? Because it's like, oh, God, like, maybe it's like trying to avoid saying, oh, God's sake. You know what? We've already spent too many more minutes of Black History Month trying to understand white people, so we're going to go ahead and move we on. We're going to decenter whiteness this morning. Okay, <laughs> this next tweet comes from YC. <laughs> um, nobody. Rent. Hello again, bitch. <laughs> 
Ooh, yeah, February 1st. Ooh, it's due today. Got to get those so, in. Venmo me. <laughs> Venmo her Okay. <laughs> Billy tweeted, fuck them kids is what funnier when the people who with no kids say it because you know they mean it. Screaming. I know that's right because. But for real though, I fuck them it. kids. Fuck them kids. Fuck them kids. I mean, except when I don't. Except when they're really cute. Fine. Whatever. And quiet. They get a quiet. <laughs> we love. We stand a quiet child. Mm. Though I was not a quiet kid. Were you? I think I was well behaved. I was well. I was the yes. I was. I was well behaved. I was well behaved, but not quiet. I do. You know, I cried a lot. I think as a baby. Okay. Fair. Well, yes, you're right. It's right. All right. Ready for tweet of the day? <laughs> yes. I'm so excited about it. Sophie, you tweeted, in honor of her birthday yesterday, I want everyone to know that one time my roommate saw Rihanna at a club and was so blacked out, she knew she recognized her but could not figure out where from, so she goes up to Rihanna and asks if they have a marketing class together. Which... <laughs> I also like being blackout think? drunk while meeting Rihanna. It's like my worst nightmare. Because then you won't remember. Yeah, you were like, like oh. I did what <laughs> You have an opportunity to ask or say anything, and then you're like, do we have a marketing class? I can like, see Rihanna be like, yes, sis, the professor's a bitch. <laughs> she would, she would. I feel like yes, sis is her immediate response. Yes, anyway. exactly. Oh, my life, mm. I love her. Shout out to you, Rhi. Well, coming up, Saeed sits down with playwright Jeremy O. Harris, the creator of Slave Play, and Daddy, these play, these play names. But up next, we are going live from the district. <laughs> Slave Play stressing you. We're going live from the district with Congresswoman Karen Bass. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Well, first of all, we want to start with congratulations because you're taking over uh, as chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, and then, you know, happy Black History Month. Uh, so we wanted to ask, you know, what does it mean to you to have so many new Black members in Congress? Well, it's very exciting. I mean, we have nine new members. There's 55 in total. And uh, out of the Democrats, we are all Democrats. We did have one Republican, but she wasn't uh, reelected. So you have 55 Democrats and there's 235 Democrats in the House. So that's a significant percentage of the Democratic caucus within, within Congress. Absolutely. Means we have a great deal of influence. Mm. Mm. So what are you all going to focus on first with all this influence? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, let me just add to the influence and say that... Um, of the 55, five of our members chair very significant committees. So let me give you three examples. Maxine Waters, she chairs the Financial Services Committee. So you can only imagine what's gonna happen there. Tell the president to look out. You have Elijah Cummings. He chairs the Government Oversight Committee and Reform. Uh, and then you have Benny Thompson, who chairs o Homeland Security. So all of the barter stuff that is happening, the wall, the stupid wall, all of that goes through his committee. But in terms of the Black Caucus agenda, one of our number, one of our top priorities is restoration of the Voting Rights Act and also reforming our criminal justice system. There's so many things we need to accomplish this session, which is two years, and I'm very excited about the potential to do that. The tea is piping hot, Congresswoman. <laughs> uh, we were just talking. <laughs> we were just talking about the Super Bowl this weekend, and of course, the NFL is no stranger to controversy. Um, are you going to be watching the Super Bowl this weekend? 
Well, I mean, the L.A. Rams are going to be in the Super Bowl. Absolutely. <laughs> Talk about controversy. <laughs> fair enough. Fair There's enough. There's levels of the controversy over there in the NFL. Exactly. <laughs> so um, here's a tweet from Politico. The Congressional Black Caucus has emerged as an early battleground in the 2020 D Democratic primary. Cory yes. Booker and Kamala Harris are right in the middle of it. What have you, your calls with Booker and Harris been like? Well, actually, I haven't talked to uh, Senator Booker. Uh, I do see him, though. Uh, both senators come to our meetings. You know, the, the Congressional Black Caucus meets for lunch every single Wednesday that we are in session. And so we see each other, spend a lot of time together. Now, we're very excited. I mean, we did have one of our former members become president before. So there is a precedent there. So we have uh, two of our members that are running, and I think that there's a lot of excitement in the caucus about both of them. Yeah, that is exciting, but of course there is a little bit of stress. Uh, do you know who you're going to back or who the caucus will back if you have to choose between Kamala Harris or Cory Booker? Well, as the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, needless to say, with two of my members running, you know, I have to stay out of it. But it's way, way, way too early, and right now everybody's just both excited about the, everybody's excited about both of them and their potential. And just think about November 2018. I mean, we had three African-Americans running for governor. Stacey Abrams is gonna be giving the response to the State of the Union speech. So I think that African-Americans have stepped on the world stage in a way that is just very, very exciting. Mm. Okay, so you do you feel like the, the uh, energy there is more that this is an exciting moment versus a stressful one? I think yeah, no, it's not stressful. It's not stressful. Now, um, I imagine as we go down the road, it might be, you know, when we get to primaries and debates and all of that. But no, right now it's exciting. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I am looking forward to see Kamala Harris versus Cory Booker in a debate. A debate. Just, it's just exciting to have more than one. Well, you know what? They might have to have three debates. Oh, oh true, true. Oh, see, now true. I'm getting Ten people at a time. That's <laughs> true. Literally, do them in shifts. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Let me exactly. moderate one of them. Well, uh, yesterday you tweeted this. Uh, Over the past eight years, I've had to sit through hearings investigating text emails, and conspiracy theories. Next week, the House Judiciary Committee will hold a hearing on gun violence prevention. Change yes. is coming. And of course, that is something that we very much care about. But how realistic is it uh, to assume that, you know, are we going to be able to see this legislation passed in the House? We, oh, no, th there won't be an issue of it passing in the House at all. I guarantee you it will pass. The question will be the Senate. And then I think, you know, over the last few years, it's been the House where you've had the most extreme Republicans. Mm. And so now that they are the minority, the Democrats can essentially pass the legislation. The battleground will be in the Senate. But you have seen, like, like take the issue of immigration reform. The Senate passed an immigration reform bill. The House refused to take it up under Republican rule. So I think there is precedent for uh, legislation like gun control that might have made it through the Senate before, but was not taken up in the House. And that's areas where I think we will be able to pass it. Then the question will be, will that guy over there on Pennsylvania Avenue, who knows what mood he will wake up in on a particular day, whether he will sign the bill. And it's my sense that when things get to his desk, that uh, he will sign them. You haven't seen him veto a lot 
Now that's been because it's been under Republican rule, but but we'll see. We'll see. Mm. Mm. So should so on another topic, should Congress work on a Green New Deal, and what do you want to see in it? Well, you know whether it is the quote unquote Green New Deal or not um, is an issue. But should the Congress focus on climate change? And science, absolutely. And since you mentioned that, that's another member of the Congressional Black Caucus, Eddie Bernice Johnson. She chairs the Science Committee, Science, Space, and Technology. And you know what? She actually believes in science. My Republican colleagues believe in science when it's convenient to them, and they don't believe in science anytime it impacts the oil industry. Mm. Mm. Well, um, you also, of course, represent the great state of California, and the I LA do. teacher strike is finally over, of course, but will this new deal work out? What most needs to be improved in the LA public education system? Well, a lot um, of funding, first of all, but you know, one of the things that w was very significant in the strike was classroom size and also support for students in the form of counselors and all. And that I believe, you know, was that was a part of the deal. And I believe that that will improve. California is so lucky right now because the state is doing very, very well. You know, I was in the state legislature at the time when the state was falling apart. The state is doing very well now. And I think the leadership in the state of California will absolutely improve things in the LA school system. Cause you know, the schools and the funding, uh, it comes from the state. Okay, well, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Congresswoman Karen Bass. Absolutely, thanks for having me on. I've said this so many times before, but I just can't understate how great it is to see people who remind you of your family members, your neighbors, Talk and about, your friends. Because I was like, as I was Congress talking people. to an auntie. Yes. Did you see that? Did you see the black artwork in the back? I did. Because I was, I was like, like, I think I know that piece. I think I it hangs. It. I love it. In my own mother's And home. it is my sincere hope that everyone <laughs> in our country gets to have these kinds of experiences where you're like, oh my God, that Congresswoman was like the auntie from down the street. Because she was sure. She did sure was. Okay. Girl, all right. <laughs> Up next, I sit down with playwright Jeremy O'Harris. Excited to talk to that wonderful artist. Stay tuned. Yes, shaded the fuck out of the book. <laughs> Hello, my queens. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with friend and playwright Jeremy O'Harris. You know him as the creator of Slave Play and the upcoming play Daddy, or as I call it, Zaddy. <laughs> Zaddy on Broadway. Hi, sis. How are you? Hi. I'm so excited to do this. This is I'm so excited really too. funny. I mean, it's it's easier to do something like this when it's like with someone you like have like sort of peripherally known uh -huh. for a long time. Uh -huh. It's like nerve-wracking to do it otherwise. Yeah, that's true. That's but a yeah. good point. Well, let's get into it. Here's, here's something you tweeted, and I saw someone like it this morning, and it was back on my timeline. You tweeted, Y'all, the daddy set is loaded and I could cry. I walked up to the pool, which is on the stage last night. And when I tell you that the, okay, girl, why are you using these big ass words? Versimilitude <laughs> is strong with this one. I'm not kidding. Okay, step one, I'm a poet. <laughs> what the fuck is versimilitude? Um, and why, well, tell, me, well, tell me about the emotions. How are you feeling? Um, I mean, I feel really, I feel, I, I was texting my friend Misha Marin, who wrote a book recently called Sugar Run that mm -hmm. got compared to Raymond Chandler, so buy it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, she was just saying, like, I feel crazy right now, like, because mm -hmm. everyone, and like, I feel the same way, because it's like, I don't feel like anything's changed, but mm -hmm. like, I, like, people come up to me on the train, and like, did mm -hmm. you write Slave Play? And I'm like, that's weird. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel even crazier doing this play, because this play is a play about a young 
artist who like becomes famous mm. and uh, or like like there's like he does a big art show and it like does really really well uh-huh. and uh, there's so much meta things inside mm. that it's like feels like you know like as my mom would say like I prophesied some things about Ooh. myself you know Hello. like literally just uh-huh. lines are said like uh-huh. there's even like a line about Madonna in the play that's oh, just like my God. so weird because she came to like yeah she saw Slave Play yeah she saw one of the last performances uh-huh. of Slave Play so sitting in the room like minding that play has been crazy but um, the set for this play was something that I thought would never get realized because mm. it's supposed to be in the backyard of like a Bel Air mansion. Mm. And I walked backstage, like I walked to the set the other day and it was, I, you were truly, I'm yeah. going to just show you a picture. Yeah, please, okay, hold on, transport please. it. Um, okay. No one else can see it, but he can. <laughs> um, I'm so excited. I was sure it's like, yeah, it's got like a big swimming pool. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Yeah. All right. That was... Yeah. That's literally the back of a mansion. In yeah. Miller. Okay. Well, yeah. exciting. Um, you described the play as a love letter to mama's and mama's boy, and I'm very much a mama's boy. Um, how does that kind of relationship and dynamic manifest in the play? Well, I mean, so uh, the play, like, it's sort of a, the, I think that it's really important that people recognize that, like, the typography of Daddy is, mm-hmm. like, a part of the, like, uh, title. Okay. And uh, Daddy on the page, it says Daddy in quotes. It's okay. like So it's like a spoken Daddy uh-huh. or it's like an ironic Daddy. Okay. Um, and I think as someone who's raised by a single um, mother, uh, like, you know, I've, I've heard the phrase, like, I'm your mom and your dad, like, uh-huh. so many times in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so, like, one of the major functions inside of the play is that, like, you think you're watching this, like, thing that, like, um, is only a thing wherein Alan Cumming and Ronald Pete are, like, intersecting. Mm. But then um, Charlene Woodard shows up, mm. and um, Charlene Woodard looks a lot like Ronald Pete. So wow. Can, like, so it's like, Ooh. Yeah, people can make their decisions about, like, who she is before they go see the show. But, interesting, interesting. Yeah. Well, okay, of course, interracial relationships figure in Daddy, but are a huge part of uh, every part <laughs> of Slave Play, which I did see, um, you know, before it closed. I'm so glad I was able to see it. And, and for people who haven't seen it, I, I would just describe it as interracial couples use plantation, slave plantation cosplay um, as a form of sex therapy. And it is complicated as it sounds, for, for, you know, everything. Um, so what I wanted to, there's so many questions I wanted to ask you, but first, you know, were you surprised by the response to the play? Because it, it was it was very intense, not just from people who saw the play, yeah. but from people, I think, who didn't see the play and just were, like, tweeting very angry about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, every response to the play was, like, overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, having someone like Jesse Green, like, write, um write some of the things he said about my play in the Times mm. was like like just like really overwhelming and like sort of turned my head around like having Vincent Cunningham write what he wrote and then having the internet or like in the Twitter sphere I have such like an adverse rea- reaction not only to like the ideas that like were around the play but like also um, the the um, the title, I mm. um, in the title in relationship to like the responses of people like the New Yorker or mm-hmm. the New York Times, mm-hmm. like how all of that coalesced into like mm-hmm. me becoming this like sort of monster of mm-hmm. some fictive monster in the mind of some some parts of Twitter, mm-hmm. um, like uh, was really it, it it was it was enough to send me to Tulum, really, um, yeah, and I yeah. went. So I, it was it was difficult. Yeah, it was really difficult, and I went to Tulum for like two weeks with some of my friends, and like I got like acupuncture and mm. cupping, and mm-hmm. you know I realigned, and like I realized that like that 
in a lot of ways, like, I'm a Gemini. Mm-hmm. So one, like, I always am going to be someone who's going to invite more uh, conversations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. More conversations yeah. around yeah. anything I'm, like, engaging in than, uh-huh. like, not. Uh-huh. And so, like, that was a good, and that's a good thing. And also, like, people are talking about a play. Like, whether mm-hmm. they're, like, talking about it in a way that's, like, fuck, oh, sorry. I don't you know can curse. Oh, okay, yeah, girl. Yeah, but it was, like, there was a lot of, like, fuck this nigga. Like, he crazy. Like, mm-hmm. what's wrong with him mm-hmm. um, online? Uh, even if it's that, like, it's still someone saying something about an off-Broadway play mm-hmm. in a 200 seat house mm-hmm. max mm-hmm. you know and that is that is something that like you can't even you can't buy that you right. know what I mean so you can't even predict that and I think that what it means for me is that like I'm at least having people think about like what the impact of theater can be mm-hmm. in a white institution because mm-hmm. I think that was where a lot of the anxiety came from mm-hmm. and I think having these conversations are really great and I just I think I just wish that there had been more of a chance for me to like um articulate some of the things I wanted to do with the play mm-hmm. um, to some of the people who like would never be able to see it mm-hmm. um, because that's one of the limitations of the form I right. engage in. Mm-hmm. But also like I I mean I, I, I think that like it, it had to be this way. It had to be this way. Yeah. Well you tweeted something I thought was really interesting um, about phones. People on their phones in the play. And I saw the back and forth that was going on. You said this. Um, I, I hate this so much when people complain about phones. If you truly think uh, if your play or musical can't keep people off their phones, maybe the phone isn't the problem. I do not have nostalgia for a time when phones weren't in the theater. Can you imagine sitting through one-third of Miller without a play? <laughs> My God. Um, and, and I thought that was really interesting because often, I mean, you know, uh, you know, actors, like, uh, I don't know, like Patti LuPone and, mm-hmm. and I think Lin-Manuel Miranda will have moments when they have called people out while on stage, like, get off your phone. So yeah. how do you, how do you uh, reconcile that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, part of that, the energy around that is mm-hmm. just the fact that, like, I'm more interested in, like, inviting new audiences to the mm-hmm. theater than, like, um, than, like, pushing them out. And I think that, like, uh, the reality of, having like really strict phone policies is that like the people they're going to harm are going to be people that look like us. Mm. And we're the people I want to see in the theater. Mm. But like the people who generally engage with the most entitled behavior mm-hmm. are generally are the ones who like don't have their phones turned off or um, rumble around with their phones during a play in like the rudest of ways mm-hmm. are generally people who did not grow up as digital natives, you mm. know? They're just like a nature of the thing. You know, mm-hmm. digital natives know like, oh, watch your problem on my phone on silent. Mm-hmm. E- even though I am going to check it like this, you mm-hmm. know? But it's always me who's the first person who when I sit down and just have my phone and I'm putting it on airplay mode, some like the, white lady is like, excuse me, you know right. you should turn that all the way off. Yeah. You know, which happened to my friend Amina Tao mm-hmm. when she saw Slave Play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that like, while I do rec- recognize that like part of the contract of live performance is mm-hmm. us like, you know, being there with the actors mm-hmm. and like staying focused, like I think we also can't forget that like this is in the Western tradition, um, disruption by audience is a, has been like a part of like has been like also a part of the contract mm-hmm. you know like right. uh whether it's it was the call like, and response yes live theater and live exactly performance. and like whether it was like in the 1800s and 1700s like you know throwing fruit on stage mm-hmm. during like the melodramas in france mm-hmm. um or like people having like straight out debates mm-hmm. with the in in the forms of the greeks mm-hmm. like theater is a place where people can like mm-hmm. broadcast their their love, their distaste, their 
boredom, anything. Mm -hmm. And I think that a phone is just like a broadcasting of that, That's or fair. can be. It can be, it can be. And there's like some, one more thing. We, of course, you and I could talk like yes. all day long, um, but I, I did want, and I know you've got to get back to rehearsals for Daddy. Yes, but, we're right over there. <laughs> right so over there. Um, but I did want to ask you as well, I've been thinking about Jesse Smollett and, mm -hmm. and, and being attacked, and understandably that hit everyone hard, yeah. um, anyone with compassion, um, but certainly queer black men, right? That, that this has been a, a hard experience watching someone we identify with her in this way. You are an artist who is increasingly public mm -hmm. and um, you know does work that is about race and sex in a very direct way. So what is it like, I just wanted to ask you, you know, kind of thinking through this vulnerability on stage when it is very much an ongoing experience outside of the theater? I think that, um I mean, I have this whole, I, I feel like the thing that might, and, and again, like, like all things in politic, uh, that, that, that are politic, like there's no right answer, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But my right answer for how to like keep my body safe is like not hiding parts of my identity from people. Mm. Like by being like, you know, I, I have never fetishized a queer experience that like um, need, that, or a queer expression that like, Necessitates closet the mm. closets, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. um, and so and so when I first started writing plays, I was always like, how do I write like the most like honest portrayals, mm -hmm. um, or at least like psychologically honest portrayals mm. of like my black queer objectivity and subjectivity, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I think what's been really cool about working on slave play and like right before I worked on Daddy is that like slave play is very much about how like the world makes objects of black bodies mm. and how like we can either like um, embody the object they see for us or mutate the body that they're seeing mm -hmm. to like... Um, reject that. Yeah, to reject it, yes. Um, and then in Daddy, which is a play I wrote before Slave Play, mm -hmm. it was like my very first play I wrote, mm -hmm. um, it's about like uh, black subjectivity mm. and how like a black queer person might see the world. Mm. You know, like pure, like the play is completely from Franklin's eyes. Mm. and. Thinking about how um, putting on stage that like perhaps there's like a psycho, there's like a, a Freudian nightmare happening mm -hmm. inside of every sexual encounter with like any person you might engage with. <laughs> like I think is like a much more like um, is a way to like confront those who might hate me mm. or um, want to see me in a more direct manner because I'm not like I'm not saying like guys like like don't like hate us like we hold hands in public just like you guys but like we keep what we do in the bedroom it's like no i want you to know like in your bedroom what i do in mine that that way that way like um like the monsters you make of me like i can just put them in your room you know mm. what i mean before you can wow so i think that like that's part of my that that's my response to like all of the um all of the hate people who like don't want to see our bodies mm -hmm. exist. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like if you don't want to see our bodies exist just like this, mm -hmm. I'm gonna show your body my body existing in the way that like you fear it exists. Mm -hmm. And like maybe go beyond that fear. I live. I live and that's why I love your work. Jeremy, <laughs> I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Continue to thrive. Continue Thank to you. thrive because whew, I'm getting my life from it. Guys, Daddy premieres February twelfth at the Vineyard Theater in New York City. I'm gonna go see it. Let's go see it together, children. <laughs> All right, up next, Sylvia O'Bell, and I see you about to say something. Sylvia O'Bell and Essence are going to bring you some black girl magic. What were you going to say? I was going to tell people they should like go out, go out and like, uh, they should tweet me right now oh, if they yeah. want to get a promo code for the show. Oh, okay. Um, because I have some secret promo codes I'm going to give out Okay, today. and your handle is what, Jeremy? Jeremy O'Harris, yes. Do it. Okay, give yeah. me the promo code. Okay, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's going to be a, a, a special one for just that tweeted, since Black History Month starts tomorrow, I just want to remind y'all how amazing and 
beautiful black women are. Like we are really magical, perplexing, out of this world, wow. You know what, I agree. <laughs> And here to help, uh, to come celebrate the amazing beauty of black women, Essence Gant and I are together Ow. on the set of Antidium for the first time ever history. to discuss, black, we're making black history yes, we right here, right now. We are. <laughs> facts, all facts. Anyway, yes, so we are here. We are going to do this. And um, before we get into how we, before we get into our segment, yes. how would you describe this past year for black women? How do you think it's You been? know what? Um, still we rise. <laughs> Can't stop, won't stop. <laughs> not today, Satan. <laughs> you know, <laughs> nothing can hold us down. Nothing can hold us down. And that's, that's all just I keep got to say. Listen. <laughs> you quoted Maya Diddy. Diddy. Uh, <laughs> a a Maya, meme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know. Well, all right. Well, let's get into it because you know what? Still, we rise is right. Black mm -hmm. women have been doing the damn thing all year, even despite yes the racism that has been abundant around us. So let's mm. kick this off with Beyonce Woo. because where else do you start, Black women yes. who have risen despite mm. racism this year? Oh Her Coachella God. performance in particular. In how many ways did this make history? I mean, how do we start? Where do we count? Well, she was the first black woman to headline, yep. which is crazy. And I love how she called them out for it. You she know, did. she did. That was real cute and shady. <laughs> I love that. Um, but it was just so beautiful. It was like an ode to HBCUs, which you and you I know. both went to HBCUs. So you, you know, know what I'm saying? I was like, has she been at the homecoming? Right, how right. Did she she Maybe was so. stepping like she was. Maybe so. Who knows? You know, you, listen, it was, it was. Black as hell. It was super black. She was black. like, oh, so we're going to do this. I'm going to mm -hmm. be black as hell. Super black. From the anth uh, from the Negro National yes. Anthem. Like you said, the college yeah. inspired. Yes. The, the stepping. The, the drum majors. The drum everything. Majors, everything. Just the Malcolm X quote in the middle. Honey. Like just. She was, she brought it. And it was the best performance I've ever seen in my entire life. It was I think the it's best definitely one of the most iconic for sure. Mm -hmm. But maybe the best performance that's literally ever happened yeah. on the face of this earth. I and will you can agree add with that. about that one. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of. And oh, yes, she did it. Less than a year after having twins. Twins. Like she just twins. Had the babies literally months. came out. Like they was they was they couldn't even be in the audience. They no. couldn't even talk. No, no, because the little ear blocker things they didn't even fit their head. They were so small. But not like we would know, because not like she's showing them to us for real. Mm -hmm. But you know, I'm not bitter about it or anything. Yeah. <laughs> do children, do what you want. But speaking <laughs> of mothers, let's talk about Serena Williams' comeback after mm -hmm. almost dying giving birth. Like this what I tell right you? here. Okay. The champ, right? So, like, your let me tell you why your favorite male athlete could never. Could never. This is why she's the greatest. She gave birth to a whole human being. A whole human. And then almost had yeah. to tell the doctors what they had didn't see. Had to tell the doctors, right. Because they didn't see that she was going, right. what her body was about to do. It did right. it. Right. Listen to black women about our health and our Thank bodies, you. please. And then after recovering from that, went out to still be on top of mm -hmm. your favorite little tournaments. Yeah. Like yep. outfits fire, collections with Virgil. Like <laughs> she just she's just like she's literally the greatest athlete in the world. Like not the greatest woman athlete, not the greatest tennis athlete. She is the greatest athlete in the world. Period point blank. Fight me. <laughs> okay? And speaking of greats, Michelle Obama. Oh my god. Her stadium book tour also <sighs> happened this past year and how like how much do we love seeing her out of the White House? I just feel like Auntie Michelle is free. 
She's free. She's thriving. To wear her Mary J. Blige boots. Listen, Balenciaga boots. I was like, <laughs> and then I was like, you know, let me just Google, because maybe, maybe I can afford them. No. Like maybe. And then I was no, like, no, no, actually, no, no, I, no. I can't. I was like, maybe, maybe they're not designer. And then they were. I was auntie. And then like, so there's that. And then mm-hmm. like, I don't know. Name me a person, a person whose book tour sold out Barclays. I don't know. Well, I, can't, I can't name you like, a person because I don't know. I don't know one. She's not doing like oh Barnes and Nobles. Mm-mm. No, she, no, she's not doing Barnes and Nobles. Your local coffee shop book readers. This sis is selling out concert stadiums. Right, like 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 Beyonce's gonna come for a book and a we book. and we and we came mm-hmm. as we should have showed up becoming a star. Mm-hmm. And finally, Lena Waithe was also had a huge ear. Yeah, like sis has one hundred and one TV movie projects she sure at does. a time. I don't know when she sleeps. Which one are you most excited about? I'm really excited about Boomerang. Like oh, she, yes, she that's is. That's coming up soon. Yes, on BT. it's coming up soon on BT, and I'm really really excited about that. Yeah. Okay. I love Lena. I just love her work. I think she's dope. Mm, yeah. yeah, I'm excited for the um, the movie with Daniel Kaluuya, uh, Slim and mm. something. Like, it seems like a romance. I'm yeah. excited to see him in a romantic lead role. Yeah, that's going to be cute. You see him do thriller, mm-hmm. adventure. I'm excited mm-hmm. for, like, the romance mm-hmm. in the movie. I love a little indie black rom-com. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, anyway. So, Lena, keep it coming. She's given yes. so many people, especially people of color, jobs in Hollywood. She sure is. Keep thriving, queen. Thank you. This has been things black women still managed to accomplish since the last Black History Month, despite y'all being racist as hell. Mm. <laughs> Thank you for joining Essence. Thank you for joining me today. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> Be a part of this historic moment. Oh, yeah. So let's take this to the timeline. Who's a black woman you know who still managed to accomplish something great since the last Black History Month, despite y'all being racist as hell? Mm. Let us know using the hashtag am to dm You're looking at two of them. Okay, there's more AM to DM when we come back. (laughs) Here's a story from National Geographic magazine. Why giving birth in the United States is surprisingly deadly. Black mothers are particularly at risk. Uh, Joining me now is the author of that important story, Rachel Jones. Rachel, good morning. Rachel, can you? Good morning. Oh, hi. Okay, thanks for joining us. Okay, so Rachel, um, this is such an important story. Uh, why are so many Black American women dying during and after they give birth? Well, there's a complex set of reasons. Uh, probably at the top of the list would be socioeconomic disparities. So, too many African American women are living in very vulnerable communities where resources are low, uh, medical facilities are low, uh, their income. But what was so interesting about reporting on this story is that black American women are dying uh, during childbirth and in the up to a year after childbirth at a rate higher than white women, regardless of their income level. So it's not just a, a an income uh, disparity issue. Right. I mean, I, I certainly Serena Williams was very open in talking about how difficult her pregnancy was. And certainly uh, she is one of the wealthiest people in the world. Um, for your story, you spoke to Charles Johnson, whose wife, Kira Johnson, died shortly after the birth of their third child. Um, and I wanted to read a quote that just, um, it, you know, just it stopped me dead in my tracks, to be honest. He said, there's a fine line between trying to advocate for your wife 
and crossing a line, particularly as a black man, which, wow. So how does racism affect the care that black patients receive from medical providers? Well, Kira Johnson's story sort of uh, typifies the issue. Uh, Charles will probably spend the rest of his life feeling that perhaps if I'd been more insistent, if I had, had you know, pulled a steel magnolia and went off on somebody, they might have gotten uh, his wife a, a CAT scan when she needed it. But as an African-American man, and certainly African-Americans in general, there are different sets of responses. There are different ways that we are treated. Uh, and so he had to make the decision in that moment, I'll get arrested if I do that. And so I have to be here for my wife. We find that across the range in other settings, African-Americans can present in, in medical facilities and either be not heard or a woman will be considered, well, she's stronger. She can take pain, whereas someone else might not be able to. Uh, people are automatically assumed to either be drug involved or to not have the insurance a different set of experiences, a different ways of being treated. It makes some women not even want to seek treatment because they know that they're going to go to this facility and be mistreated or, or ignored. Mm -hmm. So it, that's how this feeds into the way a woman experiences her pregnancy and the outcomes after she gives birth. Mm. How does the toxic stress of dealing with racism itself impact people's health? Well, that's a fascinating area of research that's ongoing and there's still evidence being collected. But uh, the researcher Arlene Geronimus uh, at the University of Michigan found that the, the uh, cumulative effects of racism, of the stressors, of the microaggressions, of, of being denied and rejected in, in, uh, across the board, not just in medical settings, has uh, somehow affected uh, the, the outcome or the health of African-American pregnancy. And so it's something that researchers have, have begun to increasingly acknowledge that has an impact. It erodes health. It affects high blood pressure. It affects um, nervous system. It affects a broad range of, of aspects of health that, of course, uh, feed directly into a pregnancy. Right. Um, and I guess one last question. What is an important single action anyone can do to help support Black mothers? I would say, listen, I would say, I think things like the development of um, policy that may be providing doula support for women on Medicaid is a big step. But just in general, listen, listen when Serena Williams tells you that I think I need a CAT scan because I know my body and I know what's happening. Listen when Charles Johnson says my wife needs a, a test. She's bleeding out. Uh, listen to that poor woman who says I need help and I need you needs to be done when it comes to this disparity. Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us this morning and thank you so much for your reporting. Um, it's absolutely vital. Thank you so much. Of course, of course. All right, we're going to tweet out Rachel Jones's story now. Up next, Sylvia and I are going to read more of your tweets. 
Welcome back, friends. I have a tweet here from Jolie. Hello, Jolie. Uh, Jolie said, uh, can we have Sylvia and Essence together more often, please? The life I am giving the life. I agree. I get such joy. I'm excited. I don't know why. I literally was like, oh, me and Essence should do a segment together. Duh. I don't know why we haven't Duh. done one before because we're girls in real life. <laughs> also, something funny happened uh, during the break. Uh, like, we took pictures. And so I was I was walking out of the studio, passing you two, of course. And I was like, happy uh, Black, Black History, History Month to you and Essence. And as I was walking out, the door was open. And, you know, <laughs> we're in the BuzzFeed offices. And I just heard some people say, happy Black History Month to you, too. And I was like, where is Fun this? Fact, if you and I yell kept it walking. Out. And I just found, like, the Cocoa Butter. Cocoa team. Uh, and they were like, yeah, we did. We just heard someone say it and we just kept doing it. A call it, and response. So shout out to Cocoa Butter. <laughs> the most wonderful time of the year. I love it. I and, love it. <laughs> and then we also have this tweet um, from Call Me. Sorry. I think it's also. Oh, oh okay. Oh, oh, it's up in the prompter. That's um, from Jolie says, Janelle Monet on track to be the first queer person of color to win Album of the Year and Black Woman to win it since the miseducation of Lauren Hill wow. at the Grammys next Sunday. She, oh. That is true. For Album of the Year, she's up. Wow. And Cardi's up. That's exciting. They're the only two women of color, I believe, who are nominated. It's been that long? Listen, it's been that long since a hip-hop album has won. Dang. And I mean, Well, no, know. no, Outkast, sorry. Yeah. And like the Oscars, too. It's just crazy. I mean, particularly when you think about music, it's like, come on, y'all. Come on. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> it's... Yeah. Like, <laughs> it is what but it is. But that would be exciting. That would be, of course. And I love yeah, Janelle Monáe so I much. I too. Um, I'm used to being disappointed at the Grammys. Oh, so. God. Oh, God. Well, what I'm not disappointed in is this morning we had. This was really fun. Sophia. This was fun. Thank you so much. I also want to give a shout out to um, our junior and associate producers uh, who came up with this idea to do a blackout. That's really exciting. And I'm, I'm honored to work for a team that's able to make it happen and to come up with these ways to celebrate black history and culture. So I love you guys so much. Uh, thank you to our guest, Master Testacion. He was wonderful. Yeah, I want to like drink great. with him and hang out and talk more. Erin oh. Haynes Black, I love her. <laughs> Congresswoman Karen Bash, she keeps it real. Jeremy O'Harris, Essence Scant, and Rachel Jones, thank you all for joining us this morning. Isaac and Saeed will be back here on Monday at 10 a.m. Have a great weekend. It's Friday! Oh, I just remembered. <laughs> oh, I just remembered.